Welcome to Reputation Town. Welcome to another episode of Reputation Town, and we are recording this one, I have to say. We just did half an hour, and I forgot to hit the button, so it happens to everybody. Uh, I am joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, John Peranak, and uh, our special guest from the United States, Molly McPherson. Molly, thank you for being with us today. I am thrilled to be here to talk about this, these topics again. <laughs> <laughs> The first one was was pretty good, but uh, we'll see if we we'll see if we can outdo it. And John, how are things going in your uh, neck of the woods? Good, good. Just uh, getting ready for the holidays, like everyone else. They're like, yeah, just get on, get on with the programming, man. Okay, <laughs> so we have three stories we want to chat about today. Uh, we're going to end with Alec Baldwin. He's going to be the uh, the the meat in the sandwich, so to speak. We have a bunch of clips. We're going to dig into it. We're going to start out with the CEO who fired nine hundred people over a zoom call uh john you sent this one to me by email so would you like to tee this up for us please sure thing so company is uh, better.com i think they're in a real estate business and um the company made the decision to lay off uh 15 of the workforce about 900 people obviously right before the holidays but also right on the heels of them getting a, a pretty sizable equity investment, 750 million bucks from SoftBank, which is a large uh, global um, private equity firm. And uh, you know, the, 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 the video of this zoom call that the CEO orchestrated to inform these employees that were being let go has uh, gone pretty much all over the place uh, and hit the mainstream news writ large. So I think you've got a clip for I do. This is an excerpt from his actual Zoom call recorded by an employee and shared with the media. This isn't news that you're going to want to hear, uh, but ultimately it was my decision and I wanted you to hear from me. It's been a really, really challenging decision to make. I've, this is the second time in my career I'm doing this and I do not, do not want to do this. The last time I did it, I cried. Um, this time I hope to be stronger. But we are laying off about 15% of the company. If you're on this call, you are part of the unlucky group being laid off. Your employment here is terminated effective immediately. Okay, so he's not going to be winning any Human Resources Awards this year. Uh, why don't we talk about what went wrong and what could have been done better? Why don't we start with uh, Molly? Well, with this guy and his history, he's known to have mismanagement issues. And he said, even in the lead up to the to the firing, that this was the second time that he did it. I think the um, hindsight 2020 comment from him is that he said that he cried and a thread that will will be heard throughout this entire podcast, I believe, is going to be that self-centered reflexive reaction is that he's making it about himself when clearly it should be about the 900 employees that he let go. Hopefully someone's putting a meme together and putting it to music and we'll see it on TikTok soon. Oh, I, I, you know what? You took the words out of my mouth. I was thinking I need to go to TikTok because yeah. there's going perhaps 900 versions of a TikTok video <laughs> of this. And then the other piece of it, too, is knowing if you are sitting down on a Zoom call and you are de- dropping a bomb of this magnitude, one of the 900 at a minimum is going to be recording, which is the reason why you were able to hear it. You have to know that going in. Mm-hmm. John, your take. Yeah, just to build on what Molly was saying, a couple of things stuck out at me. First off, the, the just awfully prolonged way he <laughs> dragged out delivering the news. You know, one of the things I, I learned years ago with, in this conversation with these police uh, experts who do death notification is if you're going to give deliver bad news, and of course this is the same as delivering that kind of news, but if you're going to deliver bad news, deliver it right away and then talk with the people you're talking to about the what happens afterwards. And uh, he certainly didn't do that. And it kind of is agonizing waiting for him to get to the, get to what he's actually there to talk about. Um, and, and I think that, you know, he was, he was just frankly really harsh by the time he did get to it. He was, you know, 
you're terminated effective immediately. That's, that's, uh, like there's not a lot of really like soft and cuddly ways of delivering that news, but that was not the, what I choose. There's a better way to do it. And I learned in Moneyball through Brad, through Brad Pitt playing the part of Billy Bean is he did what he did. You just got to rip it off. You got to tell him, you got to say you're cut, go pack your bags. You're out of the locker room. But Brad Pitt had a nicer way of, of delivering it, I guess. <laughs> had nothing to do with the fact that he's Brad Pitt. I'm sure <laughs> that he's Brad Pitt and not this guy. Exactly. So lesson number one, rip off the bandaid. Uh, lesson number two, John, you wanted to talk about the framing of the shot. Now, this is an audio oh. podcast, but for anyone, if you want to look it up, it's online. You can search the clip. The guy's name is Vishal Garg, companiesbetter.com. Um, it was kind of, he looked like he was kind of at a desk or a kitchen table. And it was, it, for someone who's been living in, we've all been living in Zoom land or Teams land for two years now. I haven't seen anyone frame a shot like this. So do you want to talk about that aspect? Well, it just, it, it uh, I don't know, this is a kind of stupid little detail, but it's the first, my first reaction is, why am I looking at guy's crotch? Like the, his, his, his torso is like right in the middle of the shot. Like it should be framed like the upper portion. You want to see the other person's face and the reaction. Like it just seemed to me that there wasn't a lot of forethought or planning put into delivering this kind of news. Oh, you know what? Now that you say it, I think I'm thinking in real time here. I'm thinking that that was done on purpose because he wanted to distance himself physically because you could see uh, facial uh, yeah, expressions or point. micro expressions and it was kind of a buffer the buffer of distance oh my god i think it was done on purpose but oh it was- and it, now it makes you wonder like what was he did he have it on a computer screen away from the table right yeah. quite possibly it seems, yeah. it seems like it well, certainly wasn't the kind of setup that you'd have for you know uh just you know want, wanting to present yourself in a way that seemed you know engaging or connecting to people and if you're, oh, but thinking of the visual, I'm sorry, when you were thinking of the visual of the man spreading and what he was saying, and I had mentioned that he said he was going to cry and he was making it about himself, yeah. the the optics of what he was doing was making it about himself as well. I mean, picture man spreading at its worst, but also it is the man spread of dominance. And we know in just nonverbal communication, that was the, that was the slouch of someone who felt empowered and and that's why it did come off as callous as well. So I think the, uh, the optics of it as well. The word of the day folks is man spread. We've had it, I think four <laughs> times now. So if you have that on your bingo card, please uh, redeem your, your, your prize. It's the hypocrisy as well, because when these things happen from time to time and what you want to do is not make it worse through your, the announcement or the lack of, of empathy through that. And this company just received $750 million in funding from SoftBank. My uh, reading up on this, the CEO, uh, it was alleged that he gave himself a $25 million bonus last year. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. You, you, you create a company that's crushing it. That's, that's well within your means. But when you fire 900 people over zoom and you do it in a callous way, people are going to compare those two things together. And it just, ultimately it's not a great look for the company. And it played out certainly um, today. It was revealed just in the last hour, and I tweeted about it. Uh, you wonder, you know, where was his team? Where was where were the colleagues sitting at the table? The leaders, senior leadership, the head of public relations, the head of marketing, the vice president of communications, all resigned today, or it was reported today. Mm-hmm. And I heard that among the people who were fired were all the diversity and inclusion, all those teams, yes. they're gone, which yes. is really interesting with, given what, everything that's going on in the environment. Mm-hmm. So any takeaways, any last takeaways on this? So if you're a CEO and you need to terminate some people, what are the big takeaways here? So John, first rip off the bandaid. Yeah, deliver the, deliver the bad news and then focus on what happens after that. Like what, you know, whatever supports are there, what transition plans, obviously it's not going to make up for the the bad news, but I think, you know, you want to, you want to get people thinking about what, what's ahead, not just what happened behind you. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly the lesson that what's, what, what's being pulled from the story, what is the headline in the story? It's the word callous, you know, how he was so cold and calculating in what he was doing. If a leader was put in the same position and if it happened to be during the holiday season, you have to be mindful of the delivery, how you're doing it. Yes, you have to do it quick, but it needs to be a soft landing. So your team and the fired employees that were let go, don't come back and throw you up on TikTok like they did on this guy. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to switch uh, tracks and go over to Chris Cuomo, who has been terminated by CNN. 
uh, everyone's been following this to some degree, so it's not going to be news to anyone, but helped his brother um, navigate the media relations and crisis management around his uh, sexual impropriety allegations. And now the network has cut ties. Uh, I'd like to ask both of you what your take is on this prolonged situation that seems to have come to some sort of an end or uh, there, there could be some other shoes to drop, but um, he's lost his job. There's rumors that he's going to sue uh, CNN for $18 million. It's very messy. Uh, what do we take from this? Uh, why don't we start with you, Molly? Well, as of now, I mean, he's lost two jobs. He also lost his radio gig on Sirius um, XM satellite oh, um, radio gig as, gig as well. Yeah, he had to step away from that. And that piece had to do with the so- sexual harassment claims um, previously at ABC um, News. So he's dealing with two issues um, that are colliding. I think what I would I take away from Chris Cuomo, this is not just a story about a cable news network, about an anchor, you know, you know, uh, who's lost his position. I mean, we've heard that story many, many times. And, and I, I applaud both of you for, you know, for following it. You know, I know CNN is certainly, you know, watched um, in Toronto and all through uh, Canada. But Chris Cuomo, what's interesting about this story is, is the connection, obviously, to his brother, disgraced former governor, um, Andrew Cuomo, who had to resign from his position in disgrace. But these are two brothers, two Two sons of former Governor Mario Cuomo uh, lauded, you know, in the state of New York and nationally. I mean, he was beloved for many people, but also a tough guy, you know, a tough Italian. What I see when I watch these two brothers is just the legacy that they're fighting for. I think what bothers both of them is their loss of power, but it's their power that got them in trouble, you know, certainly in the first place. It was just the nature of Andrew Cuomo that he used it uh, for um, covering up for the COVID-19 nursing home scandal. He certainly did it with his sexual impropriety and allegations against women. And Chris Cuomo had that same type of vibe. He was using power. And I think what happened to him here, he thought he was better and smarter than everyone at CNN, and he was going to ride it out. So he got his just desserts. But that's the that is this the thread line in this story for me is what power unchecked can do. And when people decide they're not going to allow it anymore, they're going to bring you down. Very nicely put, John. Anything to add to that? Uh, the only thing I say is that um, I think it's interesting, like the. the Obviously, the father, hugely successful governor, but, but some really bad choices, right? Like when you think about, never mind, like the all the number of missteps uh, that uh, his brother made as governor. One of the ones from a public relations standpoint that stands out is like writing a book about how great he managed the pandemic, like in the middle of the pandemic. It's like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not over. Ego. Yeah, ego. <laughs> Last chapter hasn't been written, but let's yeah. not write a book about ourselves how great we are. <laughs> right. That tells you something, I think, about uh, the mindset. Uh, but you know what? I think the difference here may be conflating, and I'm saying this is a, like a, a, a misunderstanding on our part, but not everyone who's on TV is a journalist. Right. I think he, he can be correctly sort of described as a television personality. and uh, But that still doesn't mean, you, you know, you're on a news network, you should be comporting yourself to certain journalistic standards. And I think he just thought that, you know, he, he could use his, he was a, he was a Cuomo. He could do whatever he wanted. Like his, his uh, hubris got the better of him. Do you think that this was uh, the result was because he wasn't fully transparent when he originally told them what he did? My understanding is there, there was levels to this where he sort of implied that he had done such and such. And when it was actually revealed, his involvement was shown to be much, much larger. So is it the, ethical violation itself or is it the sort of uh, intention to deceive what do you think without a doubt it's both and the piece that has certainly been reported but i don't think is picking up as much steam online because social media take the headline and people just are commenting on cuomo and it became somewhat political because of cnn but if you if you go down to the crux of the story 
Uh, Chris Cuomo did start as a journalist. He was at ABC News and he worked as a journalist. And I think he's one of these quasi commentators like Sean Hannity is a commentator. But Chris Cuomo, to me, is a journalist who happens to be in the 9 p.m. slot in CNN. I hold a Chris Cuomo to that standard. But also he was reporting on what was happening. So he was he was on a very thin line anyway because he was reporting on his brother. But if you read the document, that were released and it shows the transcription of the emails back and forth between Chris Cuomo um, writing the statements and drafting and editing the statements that his brother Andrew Cuomo was making in regard to the sexual allegations. That's when you know as a CNN, whether you're a personality or a journalist, you do not, you deliver the news. You do not frame it via the news uh, source and news story. Yeah. You kind of have to pick your lane, like either you help your brother out and recuse yourself from talking about the story or you talk about the story. I agree. So on December 4th, he sent out the following tweet. It's one of those texts, sort of just like a, like a, an image of, of text on a, on a page. This is not how I want my time at CNN to end, but I've already told you why and how I helped my brother. So let me now say as disappointing as this is, I could not be more proud of the team at Cuomo primetime and the work we did as CNN's number one show in the most competitive time slot. I owe them all and will miss that group of special people who did really important work. So even in the the statement, can't help but get those kind of competitive digs, number one, most competitive slots, sort of patting himself on the back on the way out. Mm-hmm. Power. Uh, anything else on this yeah. one or can we move on to uh, to Alec Baldwin? Um, let me do very quickly on this because I think it's worth saying is the reason why this story is going to drip a little bit longer is because of Jeff, Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN, who used to be an executive producer at NBC, started at the Today Show. That's where he got his chops. I think there was history between the two of these where Zucker probably knew what was happening, but wanted it to go away. And then now when it was revealed, when the statements of the full extent of what Chris Cuomo was doing, Zucker had to cut him loose. And that's, you know, a reason why Chris Cuomo is, you know, threatening the $18 million. But I also think is very sublime effort to threaten Jeff Zucker and say, if you know what you've done to me, watch out there. I'm going to be dropping some news on my own. So, again, second story, there'll be more to follow, I believe. Mm. John. No, I think Molly said it well. Okay, so now we're going to get to Alec Baldwin. I've been looking forward to this, uh, to speaking to both of you about this for, for a couple of days now. Have have you both had a chance to see the whole thing? I know the clips have been around, but have you seen it start to finish? Mm. Everybody. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Just before we get in, and we do have, I think, six clips from the interview that he sat down with George Stephanopoulos following the uh, the shooting, uh, the accidental shooting on the set of the movie Rust. What are your, uh, just before we jump in, your 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 high-level takeaways or opinions? Uh, and why don't we start with John on this one? So interesting, I think he... Did a, a overall good good interview. I think it was a risky strategy, but I think it is going to pay dividends for him in his uh, sort of uh, legal uh, legal approach, his his legal strategy for dealing with the the jeopardy that uh, that he's in. So ultimately, you think that this was a good idea, good good move, reputation wise or legally. A risky one, but I think um, this is the kind of thing that you do in conjunction with your legal team and you decide very strategically how you're going to frame the answers. And by being the first one out, you have an opportunity to really construct the framework of the dialogue for the time being. And and unless something, you know, um, factually changes that framework, right? Like it comes out that something radically different uh, than we think is the case is the case. Uh, this can really help set him up um, to uh, just to escape free of this. And Molly, I know you just just you've done a couple podcasts about this. You did one with Jody Fisher, and I think you did one uh, on your own. What are your what are your thoughts on the interview before we jump into the clips? The Thursday of the interview, I snarkily tweeted, Alexa, tape a train wreck at 8 p.m. on ABC 2020. And then I had to go to my daughter's uh, hockey game, so I did not see it live. I, I watched the replay on Hulu because I fully expected it to be a train wreck that 
Alex ego was going to take over and he was going to be a mix of Jack Donaghy and just the hot-headed Alec who was thrown off the airplane for playing, you know, words with friends. But like John said, um, I thought that he was very surgical in his precision to be able to quote back what his legal team likely uh, told him to say word for word. And I was surprised by my reaction that I thought, Maybe it was actually a good idea for Alec Baldwin to do this. Hmm. Okay, so why don't we jump in? I've got a selection, and I haven't uh, t- queued these up, and I haven't told you which ones these are. I thought that these were some of the more interesting pieces from it, and we'll uh, go through them one at a time. The first one is from fairly early in the interview, and this is actually one of the first things he says. I think the big question, and the one you must have asked yourself a thousand times, how could this have happened? Well, there's two things I want to say about that. One is that when I talk about this, my concern is that I don't sound like I'm the victim. Because there is a victim. There's a woman who died. And my friend got shot. He's my friend. And she was a new friend. I met her and we worked together on the some of the mapping out of what we're going to do on the film, which, you know, in the movie terms, if you can make a movie with Scorsese, you and the DP don't sit down and they solicit your ideas of how to make the film. You know what I mean? In the case of Helena, we sat down collaboratively and talked a lot about what we wanted to do in that uh, a precious amount of time we had. But um, I, I, I want to make sure that I don't come across like I'm the victim because we have two victims here. And the second thing is, is that all of what happened on that day leading up to this event was precipitated on one idea, and that is that Helena and I had something profound in common, and that is we both assumed the gun was empty, other than those, you know, uh, dummy rounds. I want to get into more detail on the day in a minute, but let's take a step back. What was it that drew you to this project in the first place, to rust? Okay, and that's where you stop the clip. So, uh, gut reactions, Molly, you're shaking your head. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Uh, everything that he said there, you know, Alec, where I will give him credit is no one can deliver a line like Alec Baldwin. I mean, even the timber and his scratch in his voice, everything he said was straight from his lawyer's mouth. And it was almost like prep at a, uh, like a presidential debate. He was drilled into that line of, you know, there are two victims, there are two victims, there are two victims. So he had to memorize everything that he said and that, it, you know, it's 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 not about me. But just from kicking off right away, uh, you knew that this was going to be a very manufactured interview. It's called unscripted. <laughs> oh, good. You know, good irony out there. But Warren, do you feel that clip that we just listened to was unscripted in any way? I, my personal... Uh, having I've watched the thing three times and I've gone through some of these clips and I've I've studied their their faces. I don't think any of those questions were a surprise to Alec Baldwin. I don't think any of the questions were a surprise. Why do you think that is? I I, I think he you know this is this is a Hollywood megastar and n- not many people on that movie set have the ability to pick up a phone and do a sit down uh, interview with twenty twenty. And um, I, you know, he might have even supplied the questions or they did uh, a practice kind of like we did today. (laughs) We did our inadvertent practice when I forgot to hit the record button. And I may be I may be callous. I may be wrong, but I just I don't think that that any I I, I don't think he's going to sit down with the possibility of surprises, of surprise questions. So I thought it was and the title to me unscripted is just like protesting too much. I think it, it was loosely scripted and he knew exactly what he was getting into. Um, kudos for pointing out. I didn't even make the that dichotomy there. I, I'm sure you noticed this. Both of you did. It was highly produced, um, highly scripted, you know, and even the production of it and the promotion of it and the rollout. It was almost like watching the Oprah Adele interview. You know, they had the same production value. But George Stephanopoulos, I don't know if you noticed this in the beginning when he said, OK, is everybody's phones off? You know, yeah. it was that behind quiet the scenes. On the set. Yeah, quiet on the set. But it was so highly produced. And so the last piece to add in, and this is how I viewed it as soon as they sat down and you heard even George Stephanopoulos's where he pivoted in his question, George and Alec are buddies. Yeah. 
They're both Hampton buddies. They go, they go way back. So this was a mutually beneficial interview to help Alec, but also to help George because George wanted this interview because apparently he and Robin Roberts, you know, are kind of going at it. And he knew this would be a ratings bonanza for not only 2020, but for Hulu, the streaming service that re-aired it. We don't have Hulu in the, in Canada, so I don't, I'm not, I can't call it. Oh. There's a rights issue preventing Oh, it. I didn't even know though. Like Hulu means nothing to you. It could just mean Hulu. Not no, in their it way is, but it. it's like that. It's like a tantalizing thing behind, uh, you know, plexiglass. You can't get out. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. But okay. but just to build on what you're saying, I, <laughs> and maybe again, this is a small thing, but uh, who knows? But the, well, the first thing that struck me when I saw the setup for that interview is the lighting. And the lighting make, made Baldwin look terrible. Like the bags under his yeah. eyes and everything. And I, I I thought to myself, they have done that on purpose. Yes, that's the point. Exactly. The, 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 the ordeal that he's been through, although he's not a victim. Well, and it has right. been an ordeal. Like, let's just get that out of the way. Like, I don't it's think there's anyone, an ordeal. <laughs> I don't think there's no anyone in that situation who wouldn't, their, their life is devastated. But oh, yeah, gosh, I think yeah. what you're seeing now is, is and, you know, I, I totally uh thought the same thing and even his suit like it was kind of like it was not rumpled it was a rumply like i'm his an everyman eyes, and every man his baggy eyes yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. we sound so callous <laughs> i know how <laughs> we sound like we work for better.com right <laughs> I just, and you know what like I, no one would want to be in this situation and no. i find it fascinating though to the the decisions that are made at these very high levels about whether or not to do this and then how you execute it I found it interesting that, you know, you talked about the production values and I don't know if, if people actually even notice this most viewers, but there's music, there's music behind some of the answers. Mm-hmm. So he's answering no, something and they have this very subtle, and you're going to hear some of it in some of the clips. There's this little dramatic kind of, that's not that you don't do that in journalism. You know what I mean? There's no music in, in a news piece. And so I thought that was kind of, um, and it's not obvious it's subtle. So kind of listen for it when we play the rest of them. He, he says, I'm not a victim here. I, I don't want to. My concern is I don't want to come across as a victim. And I agree. That's totally from the lawyers. And in media training, we say always start with empathy. So he got that out of the way. And then he aligns himself with the victim by saying, but the victim and I both had one thing profoundly in common that we both thought the gun was envy. So I'm not a victim, but now I'm aligning myself with her. And he says, this isn't about me. And then the next question from George Stephanopoulos is like, so why don't we back up and tell me what drew you to this project in the first place? And he spends most of the interview talking about himself and how mm-hmm. he loves movies and the crying with, without tears. And again, I, I, get, I, you know, I, I can't even imagine to be in that situation. But when you're an actor, you're going to be held to a different standard for something like this. Um, anything else on that clip or do you want to go along to the next? Well, who did he name drop, Warren? When you talked about, so there's a narrative when oh. he talked about him. When he name dropped Martin Scorsese, so yeah. he's talking about directing. Yeah. So of course he didn't just pick anybody. He had right. to say, you know, Martin Scorsese, and I think he drops us Spielberg later and Tom Cruise. So it's all framing and Tom. Yeah. It's all None, framing. Nothing that was said, I believe, was spontaneous for sure. Yes, I would agree. Okay, here's the next one. It wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So no. you never pulled the trigger. No, 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 no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them. Never. Never. That was the training that I had. You don't point a gun at me and, and pull the trigger. On day one of my instruction in this business, people said to me, never take a gun and go click, 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 click. Because even though it's incremental, you damage the firing pin on the gun if you do that. Don't do that. You hear the music? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. what about that clip? John, why don't we start with you this time? Well, when, when I heard that clip, I thought the same thing as Molly, um, that he's, he's almost verbatim repeating back what the, the legal line is when it comes to like what action actually happened when the gun was in your hand. And like he was very, very definitive and clear and it's so much so that you could see how he was like almost speed answering that part of it. It was just like something he just wanted to get out because it was um, so, so uh, hammered into him. Oh, Molly. Yeah, he had he had one goal in that interview, and that was to utter the line. I know it's not me who's responsible for her death, and I did not pull the trigger. So which had the same effect on me as I did not have sex with that woman. Monica Lewinsky. It came across the same way. Uh, he is making that so clear. And in the details, what's interesting, um, Warren, you may appreciate this. My, my top, 
my top podcast interview that has podcast episode that has nothing to do with media really is how to spot a liar. I mean, the numbers are off the chart. People are fascinated by lying. One of the tells of people who are nervous when telling, recounting a story, especially when you know there isn't a truth or there's some people aren't going to believe it. They focus on the details. So whenever I listen to a media interview where we're getting not only into the details, we're getting to the minuscule micro details. Mm. And Alec Baldwin, I know part of that is, John, as you mentioned, it's legal, certainly, because, you know, that's what court cases are about. You know, legal cases, getting down to the detail. But he's very specific on making sure that people get every morsel of what happened until the end. And I don't know if Warren that we're going there, that that falls apart in the end, because then he knew zero details. Right. Do you want to, why don't I play the guilt clip that you just referred to? Cause those two were some pretty powerful old clips. Feel guilt? No, no. I feel that there is, I, I feel that, that, that uh, someone is responsible for what happened. And I can't say who that is, but I know it's not me. I mean, I, I honest to God, if I felt that I was responsible, I might've killed myself if I thought I was responsible. Okay. And before we comment on that, I want to play one more and it is this. Why did you choose in your 40 years not to check the gun yourself? What I was taught by someone years ago was, as I said, if I, if I took a gun and I popped a clip out of a gun or I manipulated the chamber of a gun, they would take the gun away from me and redo it. The pop person said, don't do that. When I was young. And they'd say, one thing you need to understand is we don't want the actor to be the last line of defense against a catastrophic breach of safety with the gun. My job, they told me, man or woman, my job is to make sure the gun is safe and then I hand you the gun and I declare the gun safe. The crew's not relying on you to say that it's safe. They're relying on me to say that it's safe. When that person who was charged with that job handed me the weapon, I trusted them and I never had a problem. And this was from the beginning of your career? From day one. There's one person that's supposed to make sure that what is in the gun is right and that what's wrong is not in the gun. One person has that responsibility to maintain the gun. And what is the actor's responsibility? I guess that's a, that's a tough question because the actor's responsibility going this day forward is very different than it was the day before that. Yeah, now, now I can't. First of all, I can't imagine I'd ever do a movie that had a gun in it again. And um, I can't. When you say what is the actor's responsibility, the actor's responsibility is to do what the prop armorer tells him to do. And we did not have a problem. I mean, I understand there was an accidental discharge at one point on the set of a blank round, but we did not have a problem for me until that day. Everything gets slowed down. It's a Pruder film-esque here. And the issue with that is, is there's only one question to be resolved, only one. That is, where did the live round come from? All right. More music, helicopters in the background. I wanted to put those two together because he says in the first one, I feel no guilt, and but I can't say who's responsible. And in the second one, he kind of says who he thinks is responsible. So, uh, Molly, why don't we start with you? Maybe it's just me. We, we all know it's an accidental death. Uh, Alec Baldwin, of course, never set out to kill anyone and had no idea. It's very unfortunate. But any human being with a heart is going to feel guilt you're going to feel guilt. It's unintended, but you're still going to feel guilt. That is a line straight from a lawyer. So we know that this prepping is coming because he has to quickly transition to what his defense is. And it's again about, I did not pull that trigger. I, and he is going to drill it down to an inch of his life. But I think that line is the one that really takes my breath away and where I lost sympathy not that I had a lot to begin with in this interview, but for Alec Baldwin, I thought this isn't even remotely authentic at all to not have any guilt. It actually made me sad. I thought if I were Helena's husband and I heard that, make me want to sue. You don't feel guilty? I'll make you feel guilty in a little bit. Here, you're sued. Oh <laughs> yeah, John, how about yourself? Yeah, I, I would tend to agree that that's this, and this is where the legal strategy might diverge from the public relations strategy, and mm-hmm. and. Uh, Probably in this case, more than probably, the legal strategy would trump the PR strategy because, yeah, you're right. Like from a reputational standpoint, this is a, a good point to dehumanize someone. But uh, admitting guilt is probably probably not something he's in a position to or right. have the luxury of doing right now. 
or you come up with a new word, like instead of like, I feel guilt, but you, you know, he, but it's like he dismissed it. Like he had yeah. no feeling whatsoever about her death. He has to have feeling about he has to have something. Anything. Obviously. Yeah. 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 It did, it did come off as kind of clinical and we're all Monday morning mm-hmm. quarterbacks here, but uh, I kind of pride myself on whenever I'm watching a show or an interview, I try to guess what the person's going to say. And they, they cut to a commercial right before that. They said, you know, do you feel guilty? And I believe they cut to commercial. And in my head, I, the answer that I had come up with is like, I feel paralyzing, devastating guilt, something like that. Like, or grief. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or whatever the word is. And, but then of course you can imagine them playing this in court. Well, here he is your honor. He feels yes, guilt. Yeah. And so then they've got handcuffs on him. So um, that, but the, the lack of authenticity, because I think you're right. There's no human that would watch that and say, how do you not feel guilty by just being involved on the set? I think probably the gaffer feels guilty. You know what I mean? Like whatever. I don't even know what that person does. Yeah. Something like tape or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, John, uh, any comments on those two together? So I'll just say one thing. I think, I think the way to think about this in my mind is he's, he's in a, at the start of a process when it comes to managing the legal and reputational risk. And it's impossible to solve for both of those things perfectly at the same time. So there's going to be some compromises that are made as he goes through this first step. And the first step is probably biased more towards managing the legal risk, uh, you know, probably 70% legal risk, 30% reputational risk. As you, as time goes on and the legal stuff gets cleared up as this sort of continuum progresses, he's going to spend more time focusing on the reputational risk. So he's kind of got to lay down enough um, blankets over the mud uh, to get through it in the short term so that he's set up for a longer term rehabilitation. And so on that basis, assuming that's what they're doing, I think he, he did enough to manage it um, so that he, he looks sympathetic enough that he can move forward and there'll be more obviously that needs to get done uh, as this, this continues on. But, you know, I think, I think he's somewhat tied to the resolution of legal jeopardy uh, first before you can really fully go pursue that. What what were your thoughts? You know, John was so cinematic when he described that, when he said, you know, putting the, you know, the coat over the mud, it's like, you could be a gaffer on the set of Rust if they ever start refilming again, John, my goodness. Do you know what a gaffer does? No. Well, you said put the tape down. I don't, I don't, I just, I see it in the credits. I just, I'm just thinking that person. They hold something. I'm sure. Like tape something. Like a stick or something. Yeah. Um, I found it just, there was, you know, we listen to when we do media training, we do hundreds and hundreds of simulated interviews with people and you watch them back and give them feedback on it. And you train yourself to, to the messages pop out. And with his interview, it was, Oh my God, another one, another one. Like there was nothing. I think it was actually edited after the fact as well. I think there was probably 15, 20 minutes of stuff. We didn't end up seeing without a doubt, right? You without can tell by some of the mm-hmm. cuts and there were at least four cameras, two on each person, a lot like you talk about the production values and the music. I found that a little, a little, a little interesting. And uh, to, to, to harken back to what Molly said earlier, none of this I think was spontaneous. None of this was just off, off the top of his head. It sounds like something that came from his, his lawyers. And it just kind of struck me as a little bit inauthentic Um, to me. There was three objectives that he had throughout this. And those messages kept just falling into those buckets. Number one was blame the armorer. And that might be a little bit harsh, but to me, it sounded like he did everything. He walked around the edges of it and sort of laid out the dots and it's up to us to kind of connect the dots. I don't want to say who it was, uh, but there's only one person who tells you to do this. And the actor's job is to listen to that person. And uh, so I thought that was objective. Number one was get the heat off of him and put it onto her. Um, The second one I thought was to blame the slow medical response, which I haven't heard about in any of the media reports or anything else, but there's one element in there where he says it a couple times that she was, and the the implication is if she had gotten out of there more quickly, she would have lived. And I'm going to play that. And then we can uh, hopefully wrap up this, this chat about Alec Baldwin. At the end of, she was laying there and she was there for a while. I was, I was amazed at how long they didn't get her in a car and get her out, but they waited and a helicopter came. And by the time the helicopter took off with her and literally lifted off, we were all glued to that process outside. Mm-hmm. 
When she finally left, I, I, I don't know how long it was. She was there, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. It, was, it seemed like a very long time. But they kept saying, well, she's stable. Like, like nobody, just as you disbelieved that there was a live round in the gun, you disbelieved that this was going to be a fatal accident. So you didn't know exactly how serious it was? At the very end of my interview with the sheriff's department, they said to me, we regret to tell you that she didn't make it, she died. They told me right then and there. And that's when I went in the parking lot and called my wife. Okay, thoughts about that one? Okay, so this is where I, so I had mentioned earlier in our discussion where he was deep into the micro details and then he got lost in his story and he got lost in the details. If we had to picture what part of the prep, the interview prep, he did not spend a lot of time on is this part, like the minute by minute account of what happened. So he negates uh, so much of what he said, you know, at first, I believe if I remember now, he took the shot and the wattage in the, in the gun hit Helena. And I thought, what happened? Did she, did she fall down? Did she get a heart attack? I wasn't sure. And it could have been a minute and now it's 45 minutes. So that was one piece of it. And then, then when he brought in the assistant director, I don't know if it was the AD or, uh, you know, who was also shot, he, I think, yelled, I've been shot. And so he knew he was shot, but he wasn't quite sure. Is Helena, did she faint? I mean, he even said that. I didn't know. She went down and I thought, did she faint? It's like, you shot her to death. There's a lot of space in there for him to get confused. So this is the one piece where I think legally, in this court case or in this trial that this will, this is the part of the interview that I think would come back to Hanum. Interesting. Uh, John comments about the, 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 the deal he made about the time duration that she was lying there on the floor. Yeah. I think, I think that's part of, he's raising a lot of questions, right? He's raising things like questions that are difficult to answer or questions that would lead one to think that the blame lies somewhere else other than with him. So I think that's another example of one of those things he was he was laying down and, and, you know, all these, as we've seen from, you know, other, ca- other uh, court cases or legal situations or even political situations, you just have to create enough confusion and throw enough chaff in the air and it confuses the matter enough that you can, you can, you know, protect yourself. So if the objective was to take the, the heat off of himself and the spotlight from a legal perspective, do you think that this interview achieved that goal, Molly? Well, so yeah, I there's other two objectives that I think he had in this interview. And one was very specific, specific, and this is why I think he had the hubris to sit down and do this in the safe space, which was George Stephanopoulos, his you know Long Island buddy, the Hamptons buddy, um, who, had, to mention more, was heavily edited. Like you could see that there were times he went off script and that was cut. That's on the cutting room floor. Um, One is because this case lies in New Mexico and Albuquerque with the sheriff's office. I think Alec, again, is thinking I can outmaneuver or at least pressure them to know if you're going to come after me, you're going to come after me. Okay, like it's almost like he's his power. It's a power control move. He wants to control them to not bring charges or at least bring it down to involuntary manslaughter. I also think he's sending a message to Helena's husband. Matthew, who is clearly going to sue him. He's trying to diminish that and talk about how much he he cared for Helena. They were friends, but not really friends. They just kind of met. Um, Those are the two things, because what does it come down to? His freedom and money. How much is it going to cost him? So that's where I think his objectives uh, lie. Hmm. John. I think think, um, Molly uh, captured that well. I think, you know what, overall, I think he... um, did what he intended to do like right right up until now it's been really a vacuum of information right like there's been the the, you know official uh, police and investigatory uh, bodies have said some things but like no one really definitively has come out and and uh given the kind of detail that that he he was able to provide in this interview so he gets to set the narrative now for the most part going forward. I think there's, there's a lot of value in that from him from again, managing his legal exposure and managing his reputation. So look, if this had been a complete disaster, uh, we would have, we, we would have been talking about it a bit differently. I think the new, the, the way the media covered the interview would be different. Um, so I think he succeeded in his, um, in his goals for the most part. And I think to, to Molly's point as well, you know, get, 
given the there was there was probably in order to do the interview there probably was some measure of you know well we know there was some measure of editing and and control involved and uh it'd be interesting to know actually what that was to see you know what 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 did ma- uh, not make the cut as it were mm-hmm. i wouldn't be surprised um, if alec baldwin was in the editing suite or in the editing process yeah. or had, yeah. had a final approval over the over the cut before it went out yeah. so that makes it a lot easier to do a good interview when you have <laughs> when control you have, yeah. of it yeah his yeah. handlers uh certainly did yeah i bet i'm sure they did so is alec Baldwin's early days investigation still ongoing uh, i'm gonna ask you to project in the future is he done as an actor or does he have uh another opportunity to 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 do his craft John, you go. <laughs> you go first. I don't think he's done. I think I think he's he's in a two year uh, rehabilitation phase where you got to let the legal stuff wind its way through, and like you said, the the civil liability as well got to wind its way through. Um, he'll go quiet for a while, and then he'll do this sort of what they always do. They'll appear in some small project, and then that'll build on something else. And before you know it, he's got some some other some other thing he's uh, he's in. And then and this will seem like, oh, remember that thing five years ago? I, I, I think that's probably the way it'll end up. I, I agree with you. He's definitely going to get through it. I don't think he's going to face major charges, but he is going to serve time definitely because he won't be working for a few years and he'll be at home with his wife, Ilaria, his six kids, and he will be forced. He can't go to any sets. He can't go to New Mexico to be a, on a Russ movie. He's going to be home with all those kids with his wife who's still fighting for her reputation. Right. That's what's interesting. Her reputation will be dinged forever, but Alec will probably come out of this. Uh. Now he's also he's in the movie as an actor, but he's also a producer. So there's two potential levels of liability there, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's another thing he made pains to to distinguish, right? The 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 level of responsibility he has a as a creative producer. I think he made the distinction versus a doing stuff producer, whatever. Mm-hmm. In charge of, you know, in charge of safety and hiring the armor and and all that. Yeah, he that was a very important distinction that he made uh, as well. So if you are Alec Baldwin's crisis management consultant and and you saw the result, are you happy with it? Oh, with me, without a doubt, from the PR point of view and and John, you you pointed this out. He had to make a sacrifice. He had to choose which road am I going down here? He had to go for legal and knew he would take the reputation hit that the headlines would say, I know it wasn't me. Do you have any guilt? No, I have no guilt. He has to keep those hits coming, but because Alec Baldwin has suffered so many hits over the years and people still love him, you know, and he's still a great actor. I think he chose wisely. And I think he did the right thing at the end. I wouldn't say this probably for anyone else. There's very few people who could do it, but he masterfully surgically with the help of his buddy, George and ABC news was able to come out of it that I think it will help him. I'm curious to hear more on your, your viewpoint, but just an observation I had as we were preparing for this, this uh, podcast, if a client came to me and had the same, same circumstances, you know, what I say, yeah, yeah, this is a good idea. Let's do a, a TV interview. I think the fact that he was a TV actor and this is relatively easy for him compared to most other people. Like if it was any other person in their walk of life, I'd, I'd have like, it'd be an even harder decision to make to do some, something like this, but because he ha- has this, the toolkit already to be able to deliver something that this carefully and this, this orchestrated uh, he's almost got a built in advantage from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. What, what, what were you left for? I'm curious to hear your your thoughts, Warren. How, how does this leave you thinking about him? Not great. I watched the... I, I, looking at Alec Baldwin over the last decade, it seems to me that he has an impulse control problem. He... There was the time, you know, he's beating up journalists or paparazzi, um, you know, the the voicemail with his daughter many years ago, really angry stuff. He just... He has this impulse control. It's almost like... Tourette's of anger and I I believe that that this is at the core of this I feel like he you saw the little you know he was sending out Instagram posts of texts that people were sending him he he can't help but try to make his case because I really believe his legacy and his reputation is the crown jewel of his of his life more than more than his family more than his bank account this is this could be just the callous observations of a of a Canadian but 
I believe he couldn't stop himself from doing that. And to me, it came across as a self-serving act. Um, and I think ultimately he did the exact thing that he said at the very beginning. He didn't want to do. He said, I, I don't, my main concern is I don't want to portray myself as the victim. And I think he spent the rest of the interview doing exactly that. So I think five years from now, this will have been a bad idea. I think he's taken a, a significant reputational knock. It'd be interesting to see whether he does something else or whether people watch it. I know there's a hardcore group of people who love Alec Baldwin one way or another. Same thing with Ellen, right? She had her hardcore group of fans and they're always going to be her hardcore group of fans. But I think this is a career defining thing. And I think his reputation will never uh, recover from it. You don't think a film, anyone would hire him for a film? I don't know. I wouldn't. Well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making any movies right now, but uh, <laughs> are, just, you hiring, are you casting? Yeah. You know, I finished watching the thing and I thought, you know what, I, I, from two minds, I thought it was well executed, but not many people get to do that. Right. So he's in a, and I hate this word privilege, but he's in a position of privilege where he can pick up a phone call and make something be on the news and he gets to script it heavily and even call it the opposite of that. Like there's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on here. And, but ultimately, I finished the thing, and I felt a little kind of dirty. I thought, like, you know what? There's some responsibility here, and you're taking zero of it. And the armorer can't have a 2020 special. You know what I mean? She can't make call call up George Stephanopoulos and, and get an hour on primetime. So uh, I just I think it was a self serving, and I get it. The guy wants doesn't want to go to jail, doesn't want to lose a lot of money. This situation has taken place, but it, to me, it just left me feeling a little bit like. It was not, uh, I was looking for more accountability and I didn't, I didn't see it. And so I, my opinion of him is a little lower than it was. Oh, the opinion is definitely lower. You know, the question was asked, is he going to work again? I, th I think he'll still work, but I don't think the people who loved him or loved his acting, they're not going to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, remember, you know, I, I'm, it's so, um, I, you know, I love that you pointed out like why, why he needed to do this. Cause I had said this too. He couldn't help himself. There are people that are driven so much by ego. They have to say their piece. They have to get it out. We saw that on his sideline pop-up press conference yeah. on the side of the road in Vermont, they were chasing him. He couldn't help himself. He walked out and did a press conference right off the side of a, of a busy highway. It's almost as if he needed that redux. It's yeah. like, I can't let that press conference be my last word. I have to do it one more time and I have to do it right. And that's why I think really only one of the only few people in the world could have pulled off what he did. None of us. It goes against everything we say, right? We would never tell a client to do this. No. Alec Baldwin, he did it, but he'll never be the same Alec Baldwin. Okay. So just to wrap it up, we'll give the gladiator thumbs up or thumbs down. John, you're giving it thumbs up. You thought it was a good idea. Thumbs up. Molly, thumbs up overall. Mm -hmm. I'm saying mm -hmm. thumbs down. Okay. We'll, so, we'll revisit this in five years and see where he is. Or, you know, we'll see when there's going to be other milestones to this. And again, a terrible situation. Yeah. No one ever wants to be in this and uh, can only imagine what her family's going through. But uh, we're looking yeah. at this through the lens of crisis management. And so we might come off sound a little cold, but I know that uh, all of us are, uh, well, I know the both of you are like very, very uh, empathetic individuals. And so we're just kind of breaking this down from a clinical standpoint. Anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? No, it was a great discussion. Very good discussion. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Molly, thank you so much. John, thank you uh, again. And I apologize for uh, the, 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 the half hour segment that will never be heard by anyone. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. We'll be back with another Reputation Town, hopefully before the holidays. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, or recommend the show. See you next time.